everybody. It's always difficult following the praise team. I, I prefer when I follow Mike. <laughs> you know, they, they transport us to the heavenlies, and then you've got me. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to mention too, Nancy, I was a little bit disappointed. I expect you to dress like a pilgrim today. Maybe next year. Okay. Uh, now, now that we're done laughing, uh, my name's Paul Brown. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Chapel, and uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, due to circumstances beyond my control, I wasn't really able to prepare for this message much until t yesterday, tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> it only feels that way uh, until yesterday. And uh, I got to tell you, considering this past week, this was about the most fun and, and the most refreshing and the most exciting time that I have had in months. So I want to thank you for the opportunity. I hope that some of that refreshment and excitement uh, will be uh, communicated to you today. Today I hope to uh, communicate you, to you a fundamental change in the way you view the church and in the way that you view our common purpose as children of God. Now, if we're successful together, and, and we realize that this change needs to be made, it's going to be difficult to get this change to persist. Persisting change is difficult. The longer and more deeply we believe something, the more difficult it is for us to set it aside and replace it with a new way of thinking. This is especially true when we deal with presuppositions, beliefs that we assume and perhaps never even thought to examine. They form the foundation on which our life is built. I know I have a tendency to slide back to the old beliefs and live as if the new ones were not the reality. I have to make extra effort to avoid sliding back into beliefs that I recognized at one point needed to be replaced. But in practice, I'm still holding on there. Those of you that know me well uh, know that I am, some people would say a pack rat, I would say ecologically conscious. <laughs> and I take parts off of cars and I put them away because they're not completely broken, they're just used. Every once in a while they are completely broken and I think maybe I could use a part off of that completely broken thing at some point. But I've learned through many mistakes in the past that it's necessary for me to mark the stuff that is used or completely broken. Otherwise, I walk in, go through the box, and say, oh, here's one, install it, and find out it doesn't work. So I've learned to mark things, and I've learned to look before I reuse old stuff. Since we can't just erase an old idea, we have to think and consciously choose to use the new ones. 
The new ideas we're talking about today are related to one of our core values, equipping the people of God to best serve him. The title, Who Equips Who to Do What, is, a question, is the question we hope to answer looking at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. The passage reads, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we have three questions. The first is, who does the equipping? According to this passage, those of you that are students of grammar and didn't fall asleep in middle school because it was boring, recognize that the God of peace does the equipping. Now, it's interesting that the author of Hebrews said the God of peace. You know, he could have just said God, right? So the fact that, that, that considering that he wrote it by hand, when I write by hand, I tend to be less verbose than when I'm speaking. Otherwise, I would never get done writing. So I assume that, that, that if God would have got the job done, he would have just said God, but he said God of peace. The Greek word that they use for peace there is very similar to the Hebrew word shalom, which we have talked about, I believe, when John uh, did a message on uh, the need for a Sabbath on Labor Day. He talked, if, if, if you want a good treatment of shalom, you know, grab that one off the web. Uh, but he, he talked about shalom. And shalom and, and this Greek, Greek word that I can't pronounce, um, they, they both have a sense of completeness, completeness. It's not just the absence of conflict, but it's a sense of harmony. It's, it's a sense of absence of lack. It's a sense of being complete and not just, and, and, and at peace, I hate to use peace to define peace, but at peace with one's surroundings and in one's uh, relationships. And so the, the God of that peace says that he is going to be the one who will equip us. Now, the next question, and I just gave it away. Darn. The next question is who gets equipped? According to the passage, we get equipped. Considering the exhortations earlier in the chapter, it's very, which we're going to go into later on, uh, it's very comforting that the God of peace is the one who's going to equip us. As the God of peace, we know that his direction will lead to our fulfillment and our benefit. And then the third question, and, and this is the, the, the most comprehensive, the most difficult to answer, uh, what is the desired end of the equipping? In other words, to do what? The God of peace equips us to do his will. Now, this, this begs the question, what is the will of God? Um, I had a fellow one time uh, that, that told me that I needed to change the ministry he was involved in because it was God's will. And I asked him how he knew that, and he said, well, I, I really like the girl that's in that other ministry. Folks, where do you go with that one? 
So fortunately for us, the scriptures define the will of God more closely than that. What is God's will? We can begin with the exhortations to community life earlier in, the chap in uh, Hebrews 13. The need to continue loving one another, to be hospitable, to share in others' sufferings, to be content and free of greed or envy, to respect leadership and look for good examples to follow, to openly identify ourselves with Christ and break away from false teachings and bad associations, even though that comes at personal cost, to continue to do good and share with others. None of these things come easy. Some are quite difficult. All of these are characteristics of the kingdom relationships that we've talked about in the past few weeks. Comparing this passage to those previously studied and many others throughout the New Testament, we get a clear picture that not only does the Lord want us to live in such a way that our relationships express kingdom values, but he has told us what those values and those relationships look like. In Hebrews 13, 20, and 21, we see that he will equip us to live that lifestyle, as daunting as it seems. In looking at other passages in the New Testament, it's clear that the highest desire of the God of peace goes further than just our kingdom relationships. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. We very frequently quote Ephesians to eight and nine, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It is a gift of God, not by works. I knew there was something in there uh, so that no man would boast. But verse 10 tells us why we were saved. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now that, that creation that he's talking about is what happened in verses eight and nine when we were created as new men in Christ, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not only does the God of peace equip us to do his will, he has already prepared the good works that he has equipped us to do. His will includes that we do not just the absence of doing evil, but also to do the good. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. In this particular verse, Paul specifically focuses on sexual immorality. But throughout the rest of the, the scriptures, we have many passages where we see that this is the will of God, your sanctification, and that sanctification is much broader than simply abstaining from sexual immorality. It includes living a life characterized by holy behavior and holy thought. The God of peace equips us for this. While this list is not exhaustive, it is sufficient to show us that God's will for us includes our relationships, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, and our basic character. Remember, this is his yoke, according to Matthew chapter 11, verse 22. He promises us that if we take his yoke, he will pull with us, and the yoke will be easy, and the burden will be light. The thing that scares many of us about what we've just talked about is the sense that we have to do this. 
that this burden is on us. We have to put our, our nose to the grindstone and we have to get it right. And while that is not completely untrue because there are choices we have to make, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so when we look to his power and his provision and his forgiveness when we fail, as we approach this lifestyle, we find that it is not a crushing grind that demoralizes and discourages us, but it's an opportunity to see God's power realized in our lives. It's an opportunity for us to see ourselves mature and as we work with others to see them mature as well. There is a final passage that I'd like to look at in defining what is the will of God, or at least generally grasping the concept. And that's Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. This passage records Jesus' final words to his disciples and through his disciples to us as well. The passage says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. His words open with a statement of his absolute authority, and they close with the promise of his presence with us through all things, in all things, and at all times. At the core of the passage is a statement that we consider to be the purpose for which we are called as believers and commissioned as disciples. Looking at the grammar of this passage, the only imperative in the passage is the, is the command to disciple. Now in the English versions, it's translated make disciples, and I think that's uh, a, a a clarification, but the Greek actually simply says disciple. And I believe that's because the ability to make disciples, that is God's work. But we are asked, told, mandated to perform the action of discipling. The you that's used in this verse, verse is, is the plural. Uh, if there was a, uh, a, a new Southern American version, it would say, y'all. Okay? So what Jesus was saying was, while y'all are going about in your day-to-day -day lives, at work, at play, at home, in school, walking the dog, washing the car, disciple. In everything we do, in the going of our lives, disciple. Now, we can disciple, and we're required to disciple. Make no mistake. But we cannot make disciples. If, if you come by my house, it's almost exactly a mile from here, I invite all of you to come over and do this. You stand in front of the house, and on the right-hand side, if you walk in between my house and my neighbors, and you look at the wall, you will see a four inch wide strip 
up against the foundation where absolutely nothing grows. Now, I have done everything in, in my book. I have done everything humanly possible to make grass grow there. Grass will not grow there. I don't know why. I have gone and I've spoken softly to it and said, now, you would be so much more honored if you would let grass grow here. Not to mention that dirt, if you don't let grass grow, I'm gonna dig you out and put you in the trash. But I cannot make grass grow there. However, when we renovated our house and we had a, a boatload of drywall that we had to store, we put it outside on pallets under a tarp and because everything takes me forever, it took us months and months and months and do you know what the grass looked like underneath that pile when I finally finished the job? It was completely dead. It was all yellow and crumpled up and destroyed. And it was hard to get grass to grow there again. So the moral of this story is we, can, we cannot make the grass grow, but we can make the grass not grow. And I believe in the same way we cannot make disciples, but we can certainly act in a way where we will not make disciples. When we disciple, part of our responsibility, uh, as outlined in this passage, is to baptize and teach them to observe. We're also tasked with being examples to both our brethren and those who are outside our spiritual family. Uh, two passages um, of several that talk about this are uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, and 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. The previous expressions of God's will that we looked at prepare us for this role of discipling. The God of peace equips us to do his will. That will includes a lifestyle, character, and relationships that honor him and express the values of his kingdom. His highest desire for us is that in the course of our day-to-day -day life, we would disciple, giving him the opportunity to use us to mature our brethren as disciples and bring others into his kingdom and see them grow as well. We'll spend the rest of our time this morning answering a fourth question. I, I couldn't find a passage that would do all four. And that is, how does this equipping happen? Or what does this equipping look like? There's a, a number of, of passages in the scripture that talk about how we are equipped and how we equip. Uh, the first and most obvious is through the study and teaching of the Bible, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, at an, another time, Okay, look at those four words and think about what they say we should be doing with God's word. But that, that's a digression. We, we can't do that today. Uh, in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as we're looking to do the good works that we're enabled to do and that are provided for us, God's word prepares us to identify them and to perform them. 
Uh, another way that equipping happens is through mentors and examples. In Philippians 4.9, uh, Paul says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace, whoa, he showed up again. The God of peace will be with you. Paul, uh, Paul again says in 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. We're also, we're, we are also equipped through kingdom relationships We've spent a fair amount of time on this the past couple of weeks, so I'm, I'm just going to kind of slide over it. Uh, Colossians 1, uh, verse 28 says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man completely and complete in Christ. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women are charged to encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. This is not because, you know, here's another digression okay this is not because like women are like they have more struggles this is because they have to put up with us and that's a hard thing and so the older women who have experience in putting up with us are tasked with helping the younger women to get a handle on it so that they can put up with us too 2 Timothy 2, verses 2 and 3, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We're also equipped through the guidance of church leadership. Acts 20, 28, Paul is speaking to the, uh, to the Ephesian elders. He's saying goodbye. This must have been an incredibly, incredibly emotionally charged time. You imagine Paul spent two years in Ephesus living with these people and working with them and helping them build their church there. And now he tells them in the opening verses, you won't see me again. I'll never be back. But part of his charge to them is be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. You see, he makes no distinction. He doesn't, he doesn't say be on guard just for the flock. Because as much as the flock is at risk, the leaders are at risk. We're all in this together. And we're all at risk together for what he's going to describe. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, with he per which he purchased with his own blood. In the following passages, he talks about false teachers rising up within the assembly itself and from outside, you know, who will seek to destroy the church, the work of God. First Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
So we see that there's a number of ways that God equips us. Uh, when, when I work, I, I like to work with my hands. When I work, um, I, guess, I guess there's two kinds of, here's a better example maybe. Uh, there's, there's two kinds of work. Now God is referred to as a potter and, uh, and, and we're as clay. And if you've ever watched a potter work, a potter throws a lump of clay on the wheel, he cranks the wheel up, and he puts his hands directly on the pot, at least back in those days he did. And, and he forms the clay with his hands. And in a very real way, God does that with us. There are times that he directly touches our lives uh, through answers to prayer, through interactions with us, through trials, tribulations, and sufferings, through giving us uh, strength that could only come from him so that we can uh, survive and thrive in difficult circumstances. And so in those cases, God interacts directly with us. But there's another kind of work that's done, and uh, it, it's the kind of work that I do. Uh, I can't do much on my truck with my hands, although at times I, I do get angry and hit it. But that really doesn't fix much, okay? So I believe God, too, uses tools. And those tools are, are what we just identified. He uses leadership. He uses kingdom relationships. He uses the God of the, the, the word of God, excuse me. He uses mentors and examples. Unfortunately, we have presuppositions that are at odds with us living out the calling and purpose that the Lord has for us of making disciples. We need to backtrack a little, a little bit, and spend some time looking at how we, as Western Christians, typically view ministry and how that needs to change. And we're going to look at, we're going to look at two things here: the laity clergy, clergy division, and uh, the other one that's too far down in my notes. Laity clergy division. In a nutshell, this means that we believe that there are professionals and that the professionals are responsible for the spiritual stuff. And they basically do the work because they're better at it. And then there's us. And, and we do things, but we're on a, I'll say, a, a lower level. We don't have the same power that they have. Um, this is completely contrary to the scripture's revelation of truth as it addresses our life today. Historical, the historical context is when this appeared in the early church, Paul addressed it as a false doctrine. And those who promoted it, he addressed as false teachers. How and why it crept into our culture and presuppositions is outside the scope of this message. In Judaism, this divide existed. It was rooted in the Old Testament sacrificial system where the people could not approach God to make a sacrifice. The preach, the priest approached for them. Were they to approach God and make a sacrifice. They were judged by God because that was the God-given responsibility of the priest. This did not prevent them from having a close and intimate relationship with God, as we see in David's Psalms or the lives of the prophets who were called by God from just about every role and every level of society. There was a theological change with the birth and death of Christ, death and resurrection of Christ. The death of Christ is the ultimate sacrifice for sin, a single blood sacrifice that could redeem all humanity, made the Old Testament sacrificial system obsolete. 
Hebrews outlines for us the change where every believer became a priest and each of us had equal access to the Father through his Son. As the old saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So while there are those who get paid so that they can work in the church, they have no greater spiritual authority or power. They are not closer to God than us. In many cases, no, no. they are simply us with a different job. Both clergy and laity have the same mandate, the same work schedule, the same calling. The mandate is to disciple. The schedule is 24 7, 365. And the calling is to live a life of holiness that demonstrates kingdom values. My Bible college training and years of experience in Haiti may give me some advantages that not all of you share. However, many of you have advantages that I do not share. I'll be quite honest with you, Scott McClellan, I can talk about him because he's not here. Um, Scott McClellan has a far better grasp on communicating with coworkers who don't yet know Christ. He is my role model. He is the guy I go to to learn how to do that. I would aspire that someday my prayer life would be as, as effective and as powerful as Robin Markers. All of us have things that we excel at, whether they're based on our gifts or our experience or our knowledge. And all of us have things that we lack, that we can learn within the body. We have advantages, we have lacks, which is why we are called to a life in community, each helping, each equipping the other to better disciple because discipling is the end product for us and for our church. In terms of vocation, calling, and minister, or ministry, 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24 is an enlightening passage. I'm just going to read verse 20, but I would recommend uh, you take a look at the full passage yourselves. Each person should remain in the situation they were called in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Each person is responsible to God, should remain in the situation. This is the, the final verse. As responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now, this is not saying don't change your job, okay? That, that's not what he's talking about. What he is talking about is we are responsible to disciple everywhere. There's no, I go to church and I do my church thing and then I'm done my church thing and my spiritual stuff is finished and now I go to work and I do my work thing. It's all one thing. This is a change from the way most of us view our role as a child of God. Ministry service to God happens in the church and in church programs, but not only there. It should also be happening everywhere else our life takes us. Yes, be involved in the church, but also engage the world around you for God's glory. This means we need to actively look for the opportunities that God has prepared for us and us for in all realms of our day-to-day -day life, every community in which we live. It also means we need to train to equip each other. Now, the second um, challenge that we face is we have a poor understanding of the role of the church. 
excuse me, many of us have a poor understanding of the role of the church. I don't know whether you got it right or not. Uh, it, it, it's more of a journey than a destination, okay? But, you know, wherever you are in that trip, consider how you view the role of the church. Why do we come to church? Many answers to that question. I suggest some below, hoping that all these things are happening here at Grace Chapel, but hoping even more that far more is going on. Maybe the church is where we go to get encouraged, to charge our spiritual battles, to recover from a brutal week of struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Maybe the church is like a spiritual hospital. I go there in my brokenness to be helped and also to encourage my fellow believers. The church is where I take my friends who don't know Christ so that they can meet him. The church provides me with opportunities to serve my community. The church teaches me God's word. The church teaches my kids about the Bible and how to live a moral life. Even if all, all of the above are happening, and I hope they are, I really hope they are, we are falling short of the calling God has put us on as a church. While all of the above should happen, all of those answers are essentially passive. The missing answer is the church is where I become better able to disciple. So as, as, as we look back over this, this, this body of biblical truth, the thing that excited me, the thing that opened my eyes was, was two things. First of all, there is, a, there is a, a clear responsibility that we have to make disciples day in and day out everywhere we go. There is no difference between those who are on staff here in terms of responsibility, in terms of those who are on staff here. They're not getting paid to serve Jesus 40 hours a week while we just put in our three hours, you know, while we come here. We are all charged 24-7, 365 to make disciple, or to disciple, excuse me. That was a really exciting thing for me when I saw that. I just, because there have been times I struggled and I said, you know, I am not making disciples. What's the matter with me? And when I realized I do my best and I leave it in God's hands, it was very, very liberating. But it hasn't really gotten through to my grammar yet, so bear with me. The second thing is, I hope we have a different view of the church. I hope that while we see the church as all of those things and more that I listed, that we also view or that we come to view the primary reason, the, the primary reason Grace Chapel exists, the primary reason that we come together is so that we can encourage each other, so that we can equip each other to make to disciple. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, as I look back over the past uh, time. I pray, Lord, that if there are any times that I failed to communicate well, 
that you would sort that out. I pray that you would help each of us to see the clear responsibility that you have given us and also the blessing of your enabling and your equipping, of your preparation for us so that we can disciple the world around us 24-7-365. I pray that you would give all of us together and especially those of us that you've tasked with leadership a clear sense of what it will look like for Grace Chapel to be a place where we come together to better disciple. Help us as people and us as a church to be all that you have called us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.